What a blessing to be able to sing together this morning. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church at this time. The rest of us are turning to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. We'll have our evening service tonight right in here at 6 o'clock this evening. Prayer meeting at 5 o'clock if you'd like to be a part of that, 100B, just out these doors, 5 o'clock. Church family gathers together to pray, all those who are able. What does it look like to give Christ our life, our all? It's what's found in Titus chapter 2 as how the church family should interact with each other. I'd like to direct your attention there. We'll read verses 1 through 10 and ask the Lord's blessing this morning. Paul writes to Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. You see that likewise, it builds every time. Everything that is said previous group is also true of the last group. Likewise, younger men are to be self-controlled. Then Paul tells Titus in a little parenthetical statement, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. God, as we look into these inspired and errant words of Scripture, may we find truth, may we find your character displayed, may we find hope and comfort. In your holy and precious name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. As we look into our passage this morning, Titus 2, 1 through 10, we see this paragraph addresses a serious health problem in the church. Not the physical health of the church, but the spiritual health of the church. Last week, we looked at these verses of Scripture and we pulled out specifically motivations for spiritual health that are found in this passage. Namely, that the power of the gospel is made evident. In chapter 2 and verse 5, the word of God may not be reviled. Those who are living in step with the truth of Scripture prove that the Bible is true with their lives. We also found last week that the truth of the gospel is vindicated when a church acts in a healthy manner. Opponents may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us, meaning that it is the life of integrity lived by the believer that silences the critics. It is the open and holy life of the Christian, true integrity that puts to shame the ungodly critic who makes up lies against those in the church. And thirdly, we saw last week that the beauty of the gospel is made manifest when we live as a healthy congregation so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, meaning that your obedient life is a jewel in the crown of Jesus Christ. 
Your holy lifestyle, living in obedience to the word of God, is what God uses as it reflects the light of the gospel to draw people to himself. Now, if you were to look at your physical body, you could see physical examples of health or physical examples of disease. Perhaps you would look down at strong muscles that would be an example of physical health. Or perhaps you would look down and see those muscles well insulated and maybe a sign of not so much physical health. Perhaps you would look at your energy and your vigor, maybe your diet and lifestyle. Maybe you would look at your exercise routine and say, these evidences in my body are evidences of health. Or perhaps you would look at the opposite, and not to get too in detail, or all of us would become very seriously under conviction as we examine our lifestyle and our diet and all of those things, perhaps we would see signs of a lack of spiritual health, or maybe even as you look at the symptoms and motivations in your life, maybe even a sign of disease. Well, friends, this is the same that is true about the church. That we can examine individual parts of our body and we can see the reflections of either physical or spiritual health or spiritual disease. What are some specific examples of a spiritual healthy body at work? Well, much like your doctor would examine your heart, lungs, joints, bone density, muscles, and other areas of your body for a whole body examination, so Paul examines the different aspects of the church body and explains what spiritual health looks like in a church. Because the church is people, therefore spiritual aspects of health involve people. So Paul's example of spiritually healthy living is what we're looking at this morning. But before we look at these specific details, I want to make one observation that I think is helpful for our entire church. God outlines for us in this passage that a healthy church is a church in which people are involved in each other's lives. Last week, we made the observation that the Christian life The church body life is far more invasive than you could ever imagine. That the church body life assumes that you know each other well, assumes that you're interacting with each other. That the church family, just by nature of what it is, means that we crawl into each other's hearts, we crawl into each other's lives, and we are involved with each other. This includes involvement in both the older generation and the younger generation interacting with each other. We make it a point in our ministry to try to bring the generations together. The only time in which we don't do this in portions of our calendar year is through our, uh, our Sunday school that's split up by life generation, split up by life stage. But even in that, we let you choose. If, you, if you're a young family and you'd like to be involved in the senior adults class, we'd encourage you to go there. If you're a middler, you want to be in the young families or in the senior adults, or you're a senior adult and you're feeling really vigorous and you want to come to the young families, bring it on, you know? Is that that is the only way and the only time in our church planned calendar in which we have life stages split up in every other area. We are seeking to encourage intergenerational 
interaction. A healthy church has both the older and the younger generations here. If you are to walk into a church and you are to see nothing but any certain generation present, that would be an unhealthy church. Maybe you would walk in and you would see only gray heads from the back. Or perhaps you were to walk in and you would see an absence of the older generation. Those would be evidences of an unhealthy church because that church could not effectively accomplish Titus chapter 2. And so we are interdependent on each other generationally. In some conversations with our dear seasoned saints, I've gotten a little bit of an idea that those, some of you, not all of you, some of you in this congregation who have, have worn the sands of time well, have sensed that your time at community is useless, that your usefulness in this ministry has passed, and you're simply attending and waiting for your time to come in order to go to heaven. You may have thought phrases like this, I've put in my time, now it's the younger generation's turn. Or perhaps now is the time for me to sit back and to watch the younger generation serve. There's definitely a good side to this mindset, and that would be that you are intending to help the younger generation step into leadership opportunities, to stand by them, to train them, to mentor them as they serve, to cheer them on. This would be a great model. But I'm afraid that many of our seasoned saints have a desire to step back in their later years and to think that perhaps a retirement from physical work is a retirement from spiritual discipling as well. To unplug from the church body and to be comfortable just sitting on the fringe watching ministry happen around them. We had our church golf outing yesterday. I did not win, which is fine. The, the, the team that won deserved it. They shot like 11 or 13 under something. It was, it was phenomenal. It was a scramble. We played together, had a, had a wonderful time. Had more fun on the golf course than I've had in a long time. But if you're on the green, there's a very confusing portion of the golf course called the fringe. You know what the fringe is? The fringe means you're not quite on the green, but you're not really in the fairway or on the rough. Like it's kind of this hybrid, confusing place. To where if you're on the green, you pull out your putter. And if you're on the fairway or in the rough, you pull out your wedge. But when you're on the fringe, you walk up and you go, now what am I going to do? Am I going to putt it? Am I going to chip it? Am I going to hit a bump and run? Am I going to do it like I normally do and hit it over the green, you know? Well, what do I do? Because if I putt it, it's going to kind of get caught up because it's kind of messy. But if I chip it, it's going to get to the green quickly and it's going to go too far. Like, it's just this really confusing, this really confusing area. And, and, and some of you are in that area in our church family. You're like, I'm just plugged in enough to feel like I'm apart, but I'm separated enough to where I don't really know what to do. Like, I've been attending for years. Maybe I'm not really a member. Maybe I'm a member and I've taken a step back. You know, am I a wedge, a putter? Do I just call it quits and quit golf altogether because it's so frustrating, you know? Like, like where, where, where are you in this scenario? And, and a lot of times, as, as our dear saints age, they feel like they're on the fringe. They don't really know where they fit. And if you're there, I have good news for you this morning, and that is that God has the answer for you. And you're going to find God's plan to be perfect. 
In our passage this morning, God gives us practical, measurable steps for every single person in our discipling efforts. A healthy church encourages every church member, regardless of age, to be involved in the spiritual life of the church body. And so with that in mind, let's look down at Titus chapter 2 and verse 2. He begins by saying, older men. Now as the church, we've been given the task of making disciples, and this is the foundation of our mission. It's what we do. A disciple is simply a follower of Christ. What do we do as a church? We follow Christ and we help other people do the same. If there's someone who doesn't know Christ, we help them follow Christ by giving them the gospel. If they do know Christ, then we help them follow Christ by encouraging them in their Christian walk. It's just what we do. It's our mission. And so here he references the older men. And in case you're quick to say, well, I'm not in that category here in the island of Crete, they would have known that anyone over the age of 40 would be considered an older man. And so if you're here and you're 40 or over, then you fall into this category. But it's not just that. Really, it's anybody who has experience in life. You could be in your late 30s, and yet you've been through some incredible experiences, maybe some intense suffering, and you would fall into this category. It's somebody who has weathered time and has had experience to share with others. So older men, this is not referring to the elders in the, in, the, in the actual office of elder in the church, just referring to those men in the church who have some age to them, some experience. You'll see a lot of overlap here with deacon qualifications as they say older men are to be sober-minded. It carries the idea that men should not be governed in the church with any sort of outside sinful influence. Whether that be substance abuse, the love of money, whether it be greed, whether it be pursuing selfish power. That there should be nothing in your life outside of God that is governing and driving your desires. It means that older men need to have a right mind about them, recognizing that they've learned to think in a way that's logical and critical. They're not driven by their emotions. They're not driven by their sinful passions. But yet, rather than ruling by their emotions, these men, by being seasoned over time, can say, bend down that road, bend hurt down that road. I can share with you not to go down that road because I've learned to be sober-minded and to be ruled in a way that I can think critically and logically in order to make decisions. That's what self-controlled means. It also says that they are to be dignified. It means worthy of respect. This carries with it the idea that as men age, they recognize that what is worth spending time on and what is not worth spending time on. If you have young children in the home, you know that children are very good at spending large amounts of time on things that they should not be spending time on and spending zero amount of time on things they should be spending lots amount of time on. So the conversation goes something like this. Sweetheart, please go take a shower. And the response, do I need to use soap? (laughs) Of course, you need to use soap. It makes it take longer. I realize that for a reason. Because you smell like a goat right now, right? And so what this dignified carries with it is this idea that older men have, have lived their lives and they recognize what's worth investing time in and what's worth not investing time in. It's the same mindset that Paul is addressing Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Flee youthful passions. 
pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call upon God with a pure heart. It's saying, you invest your time in the things of the Lord, in the things that matter. Passions and lusts that dominate the immature heart of the youth have been replaced with dignity and maturity. Dignified, self-controlled. It means prudent, thoughtful, known for moderation rather than unhindered passion. This carries the idea of not being controlled by the passions of the body. That the seasoned men in our congregation need to be known as those who have mastered their body rather than having their body master them. There are implications here for laziness, gluttony, obviously alcohol. Any sort of, of life-dominating aspect of your life is also has implications in regards to hobbies, work, that you be self-controlled. Paul writes to Titus saying that they need to have a healthy view of three things. Healthy, sound, faith, love, and a, a healthy steadfastness. So let's look at those three. Healthy in faith. That means that you have a life that reflects what you believe. As you get older, you recognize that your life needs to reflect your belief system. That the very definition of belief is that you live as though it's true. You developed a discipline of understanding what the Bible says and then how to apply it to your life. Like I read the Bible, I listen to the Bible, this is what it means, so this is what it means for me. And this is how I'm going to live because I've recognized what happens when I pursue sinful passions. I've either seen it in others or I've seen it in myself. I've been down that road, I don't want to go down that road again. And so my my life reflects what I believe. It has the implication of having a deep knowledge of God, a deep faith, sound in love. This means that the seasoned men in our congregation needs to ha- need to have a lifestyle that exemplifies biblical sacrificial love, of protection and provision. I don't know if you've looked around you today, but friends, we are losing ground and what it means to be a biblical man today. Biblical manhood in its context in general is suffering in a huge way. Rather than men growing up and in the home seeing a model of love, sacrifice, dignity, protection, and provision. If they have a father in the home, the father is just as lazy and pursuant of the passions of the flesh as they are. And if they don't have a father figure in the home, their role models that they're looking up to in the social media atmosphere are those who are also immature and young. And so we have a a generation of young men who don't know what it means to be a biblical man. They don't know what it means to be a biblical husband. And as they're rescued out of the world and into our church, where do they find pictures of what a man looks like? They look at you, man, in our congregation. That your children will only know what a dad looks like by your life. 
that your grandchildren will only know what a grandparent is by looking at your life. That's scary, isn't it? And so we must operate in a way that is sound, that is healthy and biblical. Love and sacrifice and protection and provision. And in all of that, not being a flash in the pan. Not being someone who is appears to be faithful and then falls off the scene, but lastly is sound in their steadfastness. And there's these characteristics. There is a faithfulness. Steady, anchored, a consistent and predictable lifestyle. That your children and your grandchildren know where you will be early in the morning because they know that you will be in your chair with a cup of coffee reading the Bible. That your children know not to text you or call you on Sunday morning because they know you'll be at church. That the thought of you jumping into a sin would be far from their mind because your life of faithfulness and steadfastness is setting a pattern for all around you. That you're faithful. That you're steadfast. That you are the anchor of your family, that you are the hope that they can rest on. Older men, that's a challenge, isn't it? That you can't afford to retire from your spiritual life. That you have a role in this congregation and the role is to be a man of God and to invest in the younger men as we'll see in a minute to do the same. In the same way, that means in addition to this, that means along with this as we continue to add older women, and I will not draw a line on that age. You can do that as you see fit. How are older women supposed to operate in this church if we have any with us this morning? They're to be reverent in behavior. Reverent. This means that like being sound in faith with the older men, that your lifestyle reflects what you believe. That when you sit with your children or your grandchildren to read them a a book about biblical principles or to read them the Bible, if you're looking for some, we have some on our resource center. That they're not shocked that you're a Christian. That grandma is known, that mommy is known as a woman of God. Not slanderers. When we talk about meddling, it's a pastor's job every once in a while to meddle in family affairs. I'm going to spiritually meddle just a little bit. I want you to look down at verse 3. Look down with me. Older women likewise are to be reverent behavior, not slanderers. You see that word slanderer? That word slanderer is diabolos. It means she-devil. It means reflecting the character of Satan. It's the female word for, for, for Satan. In fact, it's, if my search and my, my reading were correct, it's the only time that it's used to refer to something in, in reference to older women being slanderers other than Satan himself in all of Scripture. Don't be a tool of Satan used to divide the church with gossip and slander. 
because your words matter. Don't use your words to cut down. Use them to build up. You know, the older we get, if we're not careful, the more critical we get because we tend to forget what it was like at that age. And, and as your kids get older, if you're not careful, you can be critical of those who have young kids and their parenting choices. Because my kids were perfect when they were babies. They never cried, right? And as your kids move out of the house, you tend to be critical with those who have kids in the home. And as you move on, you tend to look at others and get more and more and more critical if you're not careful. So what's the solution to this? Because in the first century, there was much gossip that was perpetuated in the church by the older women who didn't really have anything else to do. Talking about others in a way that tears them down and gossips about them because where there's much words, there's much sin, right? So what's the solution to gossip in the church? Paul tells First Tim- Timothy in First Timothy 5, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, not only idlers but gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the, give the adversary no occasion for slander. And what that means is that, that it, it's easy to sit back and to, to be critical of someone. It's a lot harder to be critical of someone that you love dearly and you know what they're going through. And so, for those of you who don't have much to do, you need to find things to do. You need to be busy. Don't be busy bodies. Be busy about the body, right, of Christ. Ministering, serving, loving. I have written just a statement in my notes. Dear seasoned ladies in our church, if I could entreat you as a son, fill your time with serving others. Stay busy about the Lord's work. Be more concerned with your own holiness than with the holiness of others. Not slanderers. Also not slaves to much wine. Look down in verse 3. This means that held captive by alcohol. When alcohol is present in any culture, alcoholism is a problem. Alcohol is not the solution to your problem. Listen to me carefully. It's not. Any person in here who's had struggles with alcohol in the past will tell you that alcohol is not the solution to any problem that you have. In fact, it makes everything worse. No doubt in an abusive patriarchal society such as the first century, life for a woman could be a terrible thing. And in those moments of of an abusive society, temptations to turn to alcohol to to try to get rid of the pain. Temptations were strong. And so Paul entreats the women in the church, tells Titus to entreat the women in the church, do not be a slave to wine because alcohol enslaves. The dangers of alcohol is what Paul is reminding and how it can 
addict and enslave. That the solution is not to turn to alcohol. It's to turn to the Holy Spirit. And then he tells them, rather than doing these things of being slanderous and and turning to alcohol, fill your time with serving others. He says, teach or train what is good. It stands in contrast to negative slandering. Don't use your words for bad things. Use your words for good things. Rather than wasting time as an idle busybody. Use your words to build up rather than to tear down, to be busy about the church body. Using your words to encourage your, your younger sisters in Christ. Do you remember what it was like, those busy years of, of young ones in the home? The sleepless nights. The burdens of, of, of children and, and, and raising kids in this, this culture today. So don't be idle. Step into that. Press into that. To lean into those serving opportunities. And notice that the serving includes people. Dear seasoned saints, you don't have children at home, so it may be time that you leaned into one opportunity to serve in the nursery so those dear moms and dads who serve together as couples can step into a worship service and maybe for the only time in their week worship free from distraction. Children are not a burden, they're a blessing. But to have an adult conversation with someone where you can step in and you can say, why don't you go step out for an hour and a half? I got this. Or to call and to say, I'd like to watch your children so you can go have a cup of coffee at Starbucks and sit and say nothing and have no one need you for an hour. To press in, to lean in. Now a word to the younger generation, you need to be willing to listen and learn from those who are willing to invest. That mentorship takes both a mentor and someone to be mentored. We need to be willing to listen and learn. When you're a teenager, it's unbelievable to think that your parents were ever teenagers. And I remember looking at my dad and saying, you don't know what this is like. And he looks at me and goes, you're right, I was never your age. But to recognize the wealth of wisdom that God has given us in this congregation and to be open and willing to reach out and say, speak into my life. Help me. Younger women. This is assumed in the older women, but look down as the older women are to train, verse 4, the young women. It's assumed that the older women, that these categories would also be true of them. So if there are any older ladies in the congregation, please don't tune out. These women were assumed to be married, but even if they aren't, it's still very important because he gives them personal qualities and family qualities to pursue. The first personal quality is to be self-controlled. Can I pause for just a minute and make a note here? And that when you look through this, there's only one group of people in the church that Paul does not expressly tell Timothy to teach and to mentor, and it's the young women in the church. Uh, Titus, sorry, did I say Timothy? That Paul does not tell Titus 
to teach and to step in. And it's the younger women in the church. And there's a reason for that. There are testimony reasons at stake. There are emotional bonds that could be built. And so if, you, if you're here and you're a seasoned lady in the church and you wonder if there's a group for you to press into, there is a needful group that needs to be shepherd, shepherded. That the, the pastors of the church need you to lean into and to press into in their lives as a service. To be self-controlled, once again, to bring her body, will, and emotions under control so that she's living a life that's controlled by the Spirit rather than controlled by the flesh. Secondly, to be pure. This is, definitely does include sexual and moral purity, but it's far more than that. It has implications on sexual, pure, sexual purity, but the concept goes into every area of life that, that the ladies of our church would be known as unstained from sin. Kind. This is one of the most basic qualities, but perhaps the one that's sacrificed first in the name of sanctification holiness, right? Like if someone's in sin, the first thing that goes out the door is my kindness, and I excuse it by saying that I'm just speaking the truth. But you forget you have to speak the truth right in love. And if, there, if there's something that, should, that would characterize your life, it would be kindness. And let me ask you a question this morning. Are you known as a kind person? person do you sacrifice kindness to serve some other end that you deem is more important and Paul reminds Titus implore the women of the church to be kind to be kind three personal qualities self-controlled pure and kind and three family qualities even if you're not married you need to be dedicated to these qualities both to support those who are married in their walk And that one day, if God would bring a husband into your life, that you would be dedicated to these qualities so you could step into that role as well. And the first is to love your husband and children. Friends, biblical values are under attack in the home today. And just by reading these following verses, many people would call you outdated at best misogynistic or oppressive, patriarchal. But we need to be convinced of two things as we look at these family qualities. Number one, that God's word reveals God's heart and his plan for us. And therefore, we need to align ourselves under his word, first and foremost. Secondly, we also have to be convinced that God's plan for human flourishing is best. That if we follow God's word, not only is it just given to us as his word, it's given to us as his best. And that if we align under this, that we will be the recipients of God's blessing as we live in obedience. Even if your heart cries out otherwise. That a wife should love her husband and children. This speaks of a wife's dedication to her family. Her heart needs to rest in her husband. She needs to be dedicated to him and true to her covenant with him. And other than her relationship with God, her relationship with her husband is the most important relationship on this earth. Most important. 
The wife also needs to be dedicated to loving her children. For a mother who has children, these children should never be seen as a hindrance to your mission. Moms, listen to me. Your kids can't keep you from what God wants you to do. Your kids are what God wants you to do. Okay? They can't keep you from some mystical spiritual mission that you conjure up in your own mind that if you neglect your children, you're neglecting God's discipling mission for you that he's placed in your home. For the wife or husband, it is God's calling. And likewise, for the wife, the, husband, the husband's calling is his wife as well. Here's how I like to think of it, and I've told Becky this many times. There are many people who could pastor this church, who could step in as lead pastor. There are many men who've done it in the past, and if the Lord tarries, there are many men who will do it in the future. I don't have any plans of leaving. I'm open here until the Lord takes me home. There are a lot of people who could be lead pastor here. But there's only one person who can be Becky's husband. That's it. There's only one person who can be my kid's dad. That doesn't mean that we hold these at odds with each other or that they're in conflict. It means that as we step in life, we must keep our priorities straight. I don't care how needful you are at your job. If you left, they'd probably do okay. And if the business closed, another business would start to take its place. But no one else can be your husband's wife or your wife's husband. No one else. No one else can be your parents, your children's parents. And so the older women are supposed to remind the younger women of this truth as they disciple. Secondly, working at home. Working at home. The opposite of this is found in 1 Timothy 5. Remember, those who learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, gossiping, busybodies. He says, no, no, work. Work, work, work. We don't really have time to get into this, but and we'll talk about this in future sermons, but work is not a result of the curse. You know that, right? Work was pre-fall. And you need to be working. You need to be doing something. Because if you don't, you're just going to get in trouble. You're going to be doing something. And the statement is about work ethic and priority. Meaning that the older women need to be reminding the young women in the church, don't be idle. Don't sit around. Don't be lazy. You need to be working. And the young wife and mother at home must not be prone to laziness. She must be given to working hard and faithfully in the areas that God's ordained for her. Now notice secondly that this work ethic has a primary focus as well. And the primary focus is in the home. Notice it doesn't say don't work outside the home or only work exclusively in the home. It sets a priority and that is that the the, the wife's and the mother's responsibility, primary responsibility, is to manage a household well. Does that mean you can't work outside the home? No, because look, look at these ladies in Scripture who did and were heralded as heroes. Deborah was a judge and a prophet in Judges 4 and 5. Miriam served as one of the leaders of the nation of Israel in Micah 6 and verse 4. Lydia was a merchant woman selling fine clothing and was one of the leaders in the first century church in Philippi. Though she did not hold an office of spiritual authority, she was one of the leaders in the church. She hosted the church in her home. Without Lydia, the seller of fine purple, there would have been no church in Philippi. Phoebe 
held the official title of deacon at the church at Rome, implying that she spent her time serving and meeting the needs and working among the church body. And all of these women are godly women who are held up as an example. So does this mean a woman cannot work outside the home? No, it does not mean that. It means that the primary focus and the primary priority, the first priority, would be to manage a home well. You can read Proverbs 31. I have it here. We don't have time to go through it. Go through Proverbs 31 and look at every single time work is referenced. Scripture's clear. It's not wrong for a wife and mother to work outside the home. But Proverbs 31, verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Proverbs 31, over and over again, work, work. She's not idle. She works. She sells. She builds. She works. She gathers. Not idle. But with that, I'd like to offer a practical word of warning. If you're a wife and a mother and you're seeking employment outside the home by necessity or by choice, please remember your first priority, meaning that you must not sacrifice the best thing for the pursuit of a good thing. It's not a one-time decision. It's a constant evaluation and a discussion that needs to happen in the home. And it's different from home to home. And Becky has given me the, the okay to give you this illustration. My wife works for a few hours of a week here at the church as music secretary and hospitality coordinator. She's very active in the lives of our church. She leads ladies Bible study. She is active all day. And often, every couple of months, we sit down and we work through how best to balance our home life. And she's the very first one to say what needs to stay and what needs to go in our schedule. Because as busy as she is, she recognizes that sometimes, and we've all been there, right? Your, your house gets kind of, wah! And you're like, what are we doing? I have no idea what I'm doing today. I don't know where the... We don't have groceries. We don't have this. I don't know. Something has to give if we're going to survive. And the Bible says, wives, that's when you press in. It does not mean that you can't manage that for someone else to do it. There are many things in the home that Becky has tasked to me. And willingly, I ask her and she tasks them to me. And so therefore, she's still managing the home by delegating. But she knows what needs to be done. She knows when it needs to be done. And it's the first response. And we will be the first one to tell you we don't do it perfectly. Hence the bi-monthly meetings, right, that we have to have. It's this constant balance, this juggling act. In a culture that's attempting to attack and dissolve the family, the scripture lifts up the family as created by God and as the wife's first priority. And we must remember to find value where God finds value. Even though our culture may not value the hard and thankless work of investing in the home, God values this immensely. So mom, listen to me. Young mom, God values your work. 
If your first response is to recoil from this, you've probably bought into the lie from the world that in order for a woman to have value, she must be working outside the home. It's the husband's job to provide, protect, and sacrifice. Primary job. And submissive to your own husband. This does not say a woman is to be put in a position of submission to men in general, but rather she is to be submissive to her own husband. It is a statement of function, not of value. A statement of function is that the wife is to align herself under the leadership of the husband. It is not a place of oppression. It is a place of protection and safety. This means that the wife is to joyfully align under and the husband is to lovingly lead. And nobody does it perfectly. But if we are seeking to be men and women of God and the husband is lovingly leading and the wife is joyfully aligning under, we have God's plan for the home and God will bless Let's go to younger men. Younger men. You guys kind of get piled onto here because that word likewise means everything that we've said previously also, also applies to you. That you are to be leading your home as your wife submits. That you are to be the one who's providing and protecting. That you could put your own name in, in, in all of those things. But there's a primary focus and that is you need to be self-controlled. In order, in other words, if a young man can learn to control his desires, it bleeds over into every other area. That if you are a young man here today, your primary focus in your life should be to be a person who's known for self-control. We'll talk about what that looks like here in just a second. Self-control. Exercising authority over your body. Not your body exercising authority over you. And then Paul gives this parenthetical note to Titus, who's also a young man. It's almost like Paul is writing to Titus and he mentions the young men. He's like, oh yeah, Titus, you're a young guy also. What do you need to do? Verses 7 and 8, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Your teaching show integrity, dignity, sound speech that can't be condemned. Don't give people a reason to say, yeah, you've got to excuse him. He's young. He doesn't know any better. He was to be an example for the other young men in the church. They could look to him as a model of self-control and his integrity. That's without corruption, his dignity, living upright and holy, and in his sound, healthy teaching. Before we talk about self-control, let's look at the last, the last group, and that is bond servants. That's employees. Why would Paul reference slaves, employees? About 90% of the inhabitants of the island of Crete were indentured servants, meaning that either they had a debt they were trying to pay off through being a slave or their life was far better having a master who would feed them and clothe them that they would dedicate their life to than it was trying to live on the street. And so the vast majority of the church family, of the church membership, was going to be those who are indentured servants, those who are slaves. And what does he say? Be submissive in all things. Align under the authority that God's places in your life. If you have a job, your authority, your boss, you're supposed to align under him. Why? Because that's well-pleasing. Look at verse 9. Well-pleasing. This means that obedience to your authority is actually obedience to God. That he has placed your boss over you for a reason, and as you align under your boss, you are showing your service to God. Not argumentative. Need we say more? 
Seek peace and pursue it. There's a great word here, not pilfering. What does pilfering mean? I had to look it up. Pilfering. You know, the only other time this word is used, and we, you write, can you write down Acts 5, 1 through 11 out in your journal beside there? You can look at it later. This word is used in Acts 5 to talk about Ananias and Sapphira when they sold, and then they pilfered some back to them. They held back. By the way, that's not a lesson on tithing. That's saying when you promise to give God something and when you make a show of giving something to God, don't lie to the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit in that way. Be a person of integrity. Do what you say you've done. But they pilfered. They kept back. And what this is saying is, if you're an employee, don't hold back things because you don't like your boss. Ah, my boss isn't really that nice of a guy. You know, I'm going to give 80% of my work effort. No. Serve. Give. You know, one of the best ways you can be a great testimony of God today in a society that's been turned totally upside down, you want to stand for God? Show up to work on time. Work hard, be honest, live in integrity. And people will be like, where did you come from? Two thoughts to conclude. Number one, what I just shared with you is the basis of our discipling. That is your responsibility. Older women teach the younger women. Older men teach the younger men. Younger women, be open. Listen to the older godly women in our church. Younger men, be open. Listen to the older godly men in our church. Live for God. In my experience, this sort of discipling doesn't happen, not because the desire isn't there, but because someone's too intimidated to take the first step. Here's your homework. Take the first step this week. Press into somebody. Lean into a relationship. If you don't know anybody at our church, open up the directory app, scroll at random, hit somebody that looks young, and call them. Youngers. Look out. Look at somebody who's got a marriage that you want one day and ask them how they did it. Singles, be committed to the families in this church. Be committed to their health. You serving a married couple in this church is furthering the work of the gospel. Secondly, and, and that if you are single and you are older, you press into every relationship, whether married or non-married, because God's, God's best isn't for everyone to be married. God's best is for you to look like Christ. And for some of us, that looks like marriage. For some of us, it looks like singleness. For some of us, it looks like marriage with the death of a spouse. And singleness or remarriage, it looks different for everybody. Look like Christ. Secondly, you can boil down most of the Christian life to this one concept, self-control. Self-control. But what is self-control? Proverbs 25, 28 says that a man without self-control is like a city that's broken down that has no defenses. Self-control, what is it? It's a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. That's why we read what we read this morning. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. I mean, it comes from God. Secondly, it's giving the authority and direction of your body over to the Holy Spirit. If you're an alcoholic, what you've done is you've given over... The actions of your life, your attitude, your habits, your emotions over to alcohol. So the Bible says, don't be drunk with wine. That's excess. Be filled with the Spirit. That's self-control. 
It's letting the Holy Spirit control your life. Call it spirit control. It's bringing your body into subjection. 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Peter chapter 1. I, Paul says, I beat my body into subjection. And sometimes doesn't living for Christ feel like that? Because my flesh is so strong and it's pulling me to sin and I'm like, no, no, no. Live according to the Holy Spirit. Self-control is operating in a way that seeks to be free from the desires of sinful flesh and cooperating with the Spirit. That's what self-control is. It's cooperating with the new desires that God has planted inside of you. It's a work of grace that God works in your life. Self-control isn't like, I will do this. Self-control is, God, you can do this through me. Through your power and through your word. My responsibility is to do what's right, to cooperate with those new desires that God has planted in me. And friends, the entire Christian life can really be boiled down to that one phrase, walk in the Spirit, cooperate with the Spirit, show self-control. Spirit-controlled in your life. Is it a hard message to hear? Yeah. It's a hard message to preach. But friends, if we dedicate our lives to God's plan for us, in whatever area we can be promised His blessing in our lives, may we give God the grace that He deserves to trust Him and to say, Lord, I trust You. I'm, I'm giving You the benefit of the doubt in this that even though Your Word goes contrary to my sinful heart, I'm trusting You. And may God give us the grace to align ourselves and our hearts under his plan for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your inerrant inspired word. May it, may it align our hearts with truth. May we see your grace displayed in a wonderful way in our church as our people become codependent on each other, helping each other see truth and move one step to the right towards Christ. Friend, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, where has God put his finger on your heart this morning? The truth that's resonating in your heart right now is what God wants you to be thinking about. Would you, in the quietness and stillness of the moment, do business with God? Would you respond to the truth that you're reflecting on? Would you see the Scripture as your ultimate authority to be aligned under? However God stirred your heart, would you reflect and respond in that way now?